You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. And a very good morning to you. Richard Watts with you here for another edition of Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. And on today's show, we're going to be talking comic books with Bernard Callio, our monthly segment drawn out. Dean Bryant, the director of hit musical Sweet Charity, will be joining us a little bit later on. We'll be chatting with sculptor Jeffrey Bartlett and also with Sydney artist Jamie North, who works across sculpture and photography. So a bit of a sculpture theme this morning. Jeffrey Bartlett will be joining us to talk about his exhibition at McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery in Langwarren. And Jamie North will be joining us to talk about Rock Melt, which is uh, a, a new installation at the NGV in Federation Court. Plus, Joe Lloyd will be joining us for our Dancing on the Radio segment, and I thought we might start with a tune by Courtney Barnett. A man who uh, is... Actually, he's not no good. He's very, very good. Bernard Callio, uh, a man who knows pretty much all there is to know about comic books and graphic novels, joins us every month in the studio for a segment we like to call Drawn Out. Suggested, I should say, that title by a listener, so thank you. Uh, and, uh, Bernard, good morning. Richard, hello. I mean, I'm you know, always always struggling to, to, to get more knowledge. In fact, you know, it's such, it's such an expansive world, the world of comics and graphic novels. So, um, And I did find out a couple of things this week which are in the international, you know, we, we like to talk about uh, local people and local books particularly, but I do want to mention these two sort of, uh, sort of uh, marquee sort of projects that are coming up. One is, um, overseas that is, and one is the Fight Club 2 is coming out as a comic. Uh, so that's being published by Dark Horse, written by Chuck, of course, um, and a guy called Cameron Stewart on the art. So it's a 10-issue um, series coming from Dark Horse Comics, set 10 years after the original story. I'm intrigued. <laughs> and I'm assuming it will follow, it will pick up after the end of the novel, which is quite different to the end of the movie. Ah, really? Well, I don't know the novel. I just know the, I just know the film. Okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the, the film is, is great fun and yeah, engaging yeah, and yeah, cleverly cast yeah. and intelligent. But... Um, Let's just say that, whereas, without trying to give away sure, spoilers sure, sure. for people who haven't seen the film of Fight Club or read the novel, <laughs> shame on you. Go and, go and read it and watch it immediately. Um, let's just say that the book ends with a whimper rather than a oh, bang. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yep. so I'll be intrigued to see how this uh, uh, comic series picks up. Yeah, well, I, 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 well, from the descriptions, and apparently there is, oh, well, no, apparently there is a six-page preview at the. <clears throat> Playboy website, uh, but uh, which, which nah, of course, not giving them the click. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it, it's it's a fairly downtrodden sort of suburban world that we're living in with uh, the protagonist and uh, Marla, Marla Singer. Anyway, blah blah blah. So that's uh, that's Fight Club Two. The other big big name project uh, got my eyebrows um, above up above um, somewhere near the, the yard arm. Yep. <laughs> uh, was a book called a comic book called Providence. Another ten. Issue series about and in the world of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, ding! Eyebrows are going My up. eyebrows have just gone up. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, set in 1919, so I think Lovecraft will be a character in this, and Lovecraft. <clears throat> 
uh, is a, was a writer of weird tales and, and particularly famous for the construction of a cosmology known as the Cthulhu Mythos. Richard. Um, I feel like as soon as you say that, there should be some, the cry of a whippoorwill in the background or a kind of eerie kind of wing suddenly springing up. Or Bernard making howling noises. Uh, Something uh, like that. (laughs) So this project's called Providence. The art is by Jason Burrows and and the writing is by Alan Moore. Ooh. So that's coming out from Avatar Press. A new Alan Moore project. Yeah, so yeah. in theory it will be coming out monthly, that's but that right, would suggest right. that by about issue three it will suddenly become every six months. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, you know, plan that for the rest of your life. Okay, let's get local because that's what, that's what we love to do. Very interesting thing. If you have a graphic novel in you, if you are working on a graphic novel, if you need two weeks on an island with other graphic novelists focusing, uh, uh, honing your craft, then you need need to go to comicartworkshop.com.au and this is a two-week intensive, I suppose you'd call it, down on Mariah Island uh, off the coast, off the east coast of Tasmania. And this is, um, uh, this has been organised by cartoonist Pat Grant and Elizabeth McFarlane, who uh, lectures in comics at Melbourne University. And this is the first of uh, three years. So every year there will be uh, one of these two-week workshops for people working on long-form comics. Uh, The the workshop leaders are a couple of uh, uh, comic book teachers, uh, mentors from the US, Leela Corman and Tom Hart, who run the Sequential Arts Workshop in Gainesville, Florida. And, yeah... Uh, it's a very, very exciting um, development. And, of course, even if, you're just, even if you're just interested, I would go to that website and just look at the beautiful... The be- uh, I'm just doing that now. I'm uh, looking at uh, Pat Grant's artwork, yeah. which, of course, uh, is not just illustrating the site, but is no, telling a, a story, story through yeah. visual narrative. Yeah. So uh, comicartworkshop.com.au is so, the website. And the workshops are t- November the 1st to so the 14th. 14th. First two weeks of November and the deadline for applications. Web, and the applications, really, you need to write a handwritten letter to Liz McFarlane, and it needs to start with the words, Dear Liz. <laughs> so, uh, and then the deadline for those um, uh, applications is May 29th. So that will be a re- I think that will be an amazing... It's a fantastic idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as they say on their website, it's designed to help graphic storytellers develop their practice, recognising that there is little support for cartoonists making the transition from smaller projects to more ambitious projects that the literary market now demands. So, it, yeah, if you've been drawing little, small comics... Um, you've got the dream of the journey. Yeah, Yeah, that big book. This is the workshop for you. It really, really is. It really, really is. Comicartworkshop.com.au for more details. Fantastic. Uh, Other other places to go. uh, Well, let me start with a quote. This one time I was up shopping with my friend Ishka when we found this massive, intense cat mask that was, like, made of feathers. It was so amazing, we couldn't even believe it. That is a line from uh, a a story called Ursula by uh, Michael Hawkins, and it's being serialised on the Lifted Brow website. And Ursula is... Uh, is a, a, a biography, I suppose, or a first-person narrative of this uh, woman, Ursula, who is at university and she's drifting through making films with her buddies and just finding the world 
uh, quite mysterious and uh, ineffable and trying to come to grips with it. And it is a remarkable book, uh, story, I suppose. There's five installments on the Lifted Brow website so far. And it's the sort of... It makes me think of the uh, the phrase that made me think of is this drifting life that this uh, young woman um, uh, in, inhabits. So it's, it's and it's and it's it's pictures and text underneath. So it's, I suppose it's a bit more like a picture book for adults. But Hawkins is one of the great uh, cartoonists of Melbourne, and and it has his. His very, um, not trademark, but his very typical um, poetic, hallucinogenic, even uh, watercolour sort of quality. Uh, with Hawkins' artwork, you feel like you're looking through, uh, there's like um, veils. It's, it's quite a remarkable and hypnotic experience, uh, reading experience. Sound, sounds fantastic. Yeah. So that's at the Lifted Brow. The Lifted Brow website, yeah. And uh, yeah, well, Hawkins is another one of the, the Tasmanian comics diaspora. You know, you look around, you talk, talk to someone for a little while and you go, wait a minute, you're another Tasmanian. Is, are there no native Melbourne comic book artists? Yes, there are. Yeah. <laughs> there, there certainly are. I know a few of them, as do you. So okay. stop asking rhetorical <laughs> questions on radio. Why not? Uh, I've got a question for you. Go on. Have you heard mm. of a newly launched comic called Balaclava Junction? I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Now, this is a book. Uh, it's a collection three, of true stories from stories. Melbourne's Jewish community yes. with special attention devoted to the settings of Balaclava and Caulfield North. Um, I didn't get to the launch, which was at Embiggen Books yeah. last week, but I thought I would mention this because, hey, uh, new comic, new local comic, very, very Melbourne, published Absolutely. by Gonzo Comics, nice. who were established in 2014. Well, I'll have to look that up, yes. No, I, I did hear people talking about that, but I didn't go either. Um, and... What about if people are fans of the band The Fall? Uh, so this is sort of a post-punk uh, operation that started in 1976, and, and there's a man called Mark Smith. So we're in Manchester, in England. Uh, so there was a woman called Una Baines, who was the original keyboard player in The Fall, and Keith McDougall on keithmcdougall.com so that's not with not it's not mac it's keithmcdougall.com uh who is a melbourne cartoonist but currently living in manchester uh ha- is c- collaborating with una baines and making a beautiful online story there called i'll be your mirror uh and it's uh, this taken from a velvet underground song that title is it really okay well that's interesting because um when Una Baines meets Mark E. Smith in this comic. They they play the Velvet Underground and take some drugs. And there's a, an amazing sequence in this of what happens. Again, a hallucinatory. So nice. Everything's ties together, eh? But uh, um, a very nice little sequence in this comic where Una sort of is is experiencing the world through these you know enlarged eyes of the drug experience so it's really it's a fantastic uh thing to check out so that's on keith mcdougall's mcdougall's website keithmcdougall.com i'll be your mirror sounds great yeah it's re- it really is and uh yeah a really interesting uh cartoonist he's the one who does that book who's done two uh, um, volumes of the many lives of george gross as well so he's the, you know very quite an ambitious uh cartoonist and yeah really really nice work yeah 
Well, as well as the Tasmanian diaspora, then yes. we've got the Australian diaspora. <laughs> That's right. Australian comic book makers living overseas and making web comics. Yes. Now, are you a traditionalist, Bernard? Do you prefer the printed comic that you can hold in your hands and turn pages at your leisure? Do you find reading comics online a different experience? Or have you kind of got over that uh, scanning the screen issue and enjoy web comics as they are? I must say, I've just, and I'll review this next time I'm in, I've just got uh, Dylan Horrocks' new book, Sam Zabel and the Ma- Magic pen which I was following on uh, web for a while um, and um, I am old <laughs> um, I don't know whether that's the, the, the reason or not but uh, but um, it's all in one place with the book yeah I, I, I still for me web comics are a bit like manga my, my relationship to manga it's a bit uh, distanced I, I, can't, I, I'm not, I haven't I haven't found my way in Yet, yet. I'm sure there's a way in for me, um, but uh, but the, the 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 sitting with the thing, the carrying it around, that that, that yeah, I must there's, say. I must admit, I I do enjoy the the printed object in my hand because I like the object, I like the materiality, yeah. I like the texture of the page, the I like being able to yeah. flip back a couple of pages easily and yeah. all those things. But I'm sure there are people listening going, ah, oh, oh, fogies. My um, I can hear the creaking in their lungs. And I know plenty of people older than me who love reading uh, online, Kindles yeah. and on their and comics on their iPad particularly. Certainly so. that. And I was talking to this um, ch- um, friend the other day who was, and, and part of his rationale is, man, it's just so much cheaper. And I go, I want to read that book now. And 30 seconds later, I am reading it. Yeah. Um, so certainly in terms of knowing everything about comics or knowing as much as you want to know, it is a, a wonderful I think I maybe I use the physical uh, nature of things as a funnel, like to, actually, so that it's not overwhelming, you know, because you know there is that overwhelming nature of, of web, web world yeah, as well. Yeah, you just want to walk away. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Hide in a corner. Yeah, burn yep. the computer. <laughs> Luddites are us. Bernard Calio joins us once a month talking about comic books. It's always a pleasure, Bernard. We should uh, just uh, a quick reminder that if people wanted to apply for the comics art workshop webs. Uh, 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 workshops yes. in Tasmania yes. uh, from the 1st to the 14th of November comicsartworkshop.com.au One of the great and another amazing development I would say in Australian comics like that there's going to be incredible work coming out of I'll that. be really intrigued to see what the, the outcomes are both yeah. short term and long term and Bernard we will catch you in a month's time See you then My next guest has just joined me in the studio. Dean Bryant is the Helpman Award-winning director of Sweet Charity and many other productions besides. Every time I look at his bio, uh, it just gets slightly daunting, the the (laughs) range of work that you've worked on. Dean, do you feel more comfortable working in musical theatre or traditional theatre? Traditional theatre is plays, is it? (laughs) Yes. I I probably feel more comfortable in musicals because I've done more of them. I started out in musicals and I trained at WAPA in musicals theatre, but when I was working with Mary Margulies last year on a straight play that literally had no blocking or anything and it was just about the text, I kind of went, I quite like this too. It's very unstressful not to worry about getting people on stage. 
now uh, you're here to chat about Sweet Charity, which is uh, opening at the Playhouse at Arts Centre Melbourne. Uh, I believe opening night is tonight. It's tonight. tonight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going yeah. to a matinee shortly, and then we're doing our opening night. So preview last night, preview matinee, and then opening, and then running through until the 8th of March. But it's a show that's already been road tested very much because you what originally opened this at the Hayes Theatre in Sydney. Yeah, almost in a year February ago. Last year. Yeah. yeah, it has. It's been. Um, we played a month then. And honestly, like at that point, we assumed that would be the season because it was the first show in the Hayes, which was named after Nancy Hayes. And there was, you know, just this feeling that, wow, we're doing a lovely little special show and won't that have been a great time? And then suddenly we've now done it at the Sydney Opera House, we've done it at the Canberra Playhouse, and now we're at the Playhouse here. What is it about Sweet Charity that has so resonated with audiences and critics alike? Well, I think getting back to the heart of the story, which is as I see it, about a woman born into circumstances, no education, no family, no real way to get above, but yet still has all that hope that we all have of bettering her existence and just bucking up against it again and again and again. I think everyone can relate to that feeling of, I want to improve my life. There are so many obstacles against me, but I will never, never stop. And that kind of makes it sound like it's working-class theatre or something. But, of course, it still has Big Spender and all these great sexy girls in it. Now, it was what, a, a Broadway production in the 1960s, mm -hmm. and then later became a film um, with Shirley MacLaine. That's right. Uh, Bob Fosse created it as a musical based on Fellini's Knights of Kiberia. And then Bob Fosse also did the movie version of it a few years later with Shirley MacLaine in the lead role. Now, Bob Fosse is a name for, for music theatre devotees. That's a kind of magic name. That's music theatre royalty. Absolutely. There's Bob Fosse and Stephen Sondheim are kind of the gods. Bob Fosse was kind of the person who made dance into such an eclectic way of telling stories. But the funny thing is, like, what I'm admiring most about him coming back to Sweet Charity is how clever he was at taking source material and reshaping it in a way. Like, he's a real creator more than a choreographer necessarily. And as you could see from his later film work, he did the film of Cabaret, the movie All That Jazz, um, lots of great movies. He really was just a master of all things. When you've got a master like that who's created the mould for the work, how much of a challenge is it for you to then break the mould and remake the show the way you want it to be? Well, what I kind of did was I'd researched a lot about how he created the musical. Uh, it was his idea to do it. He went and watched the Fellini movie uh, in a, like an old screening because that's what you did back in the 60s if you wanted to see a movie you had to go to the cinema to see it he took his wife who he was going to build the musical on later she fell asleep and he was up all night writing a, a version of how to reset it from Rome into New York City in the dance halls so um, I kind of looked at what his the things he decided to do from the Fellini movie to the Fosse script as I had it and just went okay, so if I was inventing that now with the same kind of impulses, what would it look like to me? And I think the key was in our design going, look, she's stuck in the Fandango ballroom, this dance hall, so let's make the entire thing set in the Fandango and no single prop in the show can exist that wouldn't exist in the Fandango. So basically the show is created on 
very small amounts, which means you have to use your imagination a lot more. Now, the notion of the dance hall is something quite foreign to contemporary audiences, mm. but would have been much more familiar to a New York audience in the 1960s. Yep. The notion of going to a hall, paying a young woman to dance with you, and very probably more. Absolutely. It's, it's such a strange thing to me. Uh, it was so popular from the early 1900s and started to fade out by the late 1960s. Basically, it, it was a way for, I guess, lonely men to have some sort of interaction with a woman. They, they weren't really supposed to do anything except hold them, dance with them, and actually make conversation was the number one thing they were getting out of it. But then, of course, with any business where a man and a woman are paying for a transaction, go into a side room and something very different happens. And, of course, that's what we're really pushing in our version of it. Like, that, that sense of men buying women and women going, God, all I've got to sell is my body and I won't even have that in a, a decade's time. Not exactly a hopeful uh, uh, idea for a musical because musicals traditionally people tend to associate them with um, feel-good entertainment, fairly light entertainment, uh, something to I don't know break you out of the, the the routine of being of your desk job or your day job. Mm. You go and see something something lighter, something frothier. I guess what I mean. I guess I sort of agree with you there, but also feel what they do is they kind of break you out by um, attaching themselves to your passions and to your emotion and something like this, although it is very funny and obviously sexy, seeing as the women are wearing virtually nothing for the whole show, what I think it gets to is that feeling that you have maybe when you're sitting at your desk or at home thinking, God, I want something better, I want something more exciting to happen, I want to meet someone, I want to do something. And I think it sort of approaches the musical from that kind of capacity. Tell us about the cast that you're working with, because I know that uh, your star, Verity Hunt-Ballard, may be familiar to some Melbourne audiences mm-hmm. from Mary Poppins, the musical that she was in as well. She's won a helpman for, for the role in this and in Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is the star, but I'm told very much you've made this production of Sweet Charity an ensemble show. Absolutely. There's 12 in the cast, and one of those also is in the band. He plays the guitar and one of the roles. And I wanted to make sure when I cast it, because 12 was the size that I thought we could fit in the Hayes, which is a very small theatre, I wanted to make sure every single one of those people had something featured in the show, so you realised all 12 that were making up this whole world were all multi-skilled, wonderful performers. So you obviously will take Verity's performance away because it is one of the best musical theatre performances I've seen in years. And every time I go back, she finds something new. But then you'll also look around her and there's 11 wonderful people dancing and singing and creating these really layered characters. It sounds like you must have almost every triple threat performer in the industry currently working in your show. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to create my own factory there. (laughs) How challenging is it to find uh, performers who are that well-rounded for musical theatre, who can act convincingly, can sing beautifully and dance smoothly and well? Uh, It's getting easier and easier as the training improves. Uh, There's quite a lot of music theatre schools around the country now. There used to be when I started out only Whopper, which is where I went to school. Uh, And now it's just such a given that if you're in musical theatre, you just will have a brilliant voice because why bother going into it in the first place? You will be able to act or you will train yourself to do it over a few years and you will force yourself, if not a natural dancer, to become a good enough mover that you can be useful because I think especially in Australia, but it happens on the Broadway and the West End as well, 
it's just now expected that you can do all those three things to a, a really, really high capacity. Otherwise, don't bother turning up to the audition. Well, certainly everything I've heard about the cast and the uh, the overall package, which is Sweet Charity, has been very, very good. So, uh, Dean Bryant, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. And uh, my next couple of interviews hasn't been deliberately planned, but uh, we're going to be talking to a couple of sculptors uh, over the next half hour or so. The first of them joins me in the studio now, Geoffrey Bartlett. Welcome to Triple R. Yeah, thank you for having me on. My very great pleasure. Now, um, you have uh, a new exhibition of work uh, spanning the years 1974 to 2014 mm. on at McLellan Sculpture Park and Gallery down in Lang Warren. Uh, the exhibition uh, opened uh, on the 22nd of February. It's running through to the 17th of May. It must be quite a challenge for you and a curator to select works that mm. truly embody that kind of vast span of practice. Exactly, and, and in, particularly in my case where my work changes and has changed quite dramatically at times. And so I was, you know, wondering and almost worried uh, how they would sit together, uh, 40 works roughly over 41 years. Um, so, you know, the funny thing is, though, I think as an artist you're often too close to your work and you worry about things that you really shouldn't. Anyway, uh, the curator Penny Teal, I left to, you know, to largely choose those works, you know, that she felt going through the archive. And uh, she's come up with some really lovely um, connections, you know, from early works to works that I've done quite recently. Uh, and so that's been quite a a surprise for me that they do sit together quite well and there are these linkages you know that occur unconsciously over long periods of time now one of the things that's uh, special about this exhibition is the title of uh, the exhibition 280205 uh, which i believe is the date that your wife died mm. uh, yeah the, uh, you know i thought long and hard about that one you know, this is a you know the so-called retrospective, which has all sorts of weird connotations. But it is you know a, a body of work over my career, and I wanted it to have a meaningful title. And I, I look through you know the list of works, and you try and find one that has a particular sense of poetry about it. For instance, I had a show some time ago, and the work that stuck out at me was Silver Cloud. You know, beautiful poetic sort of content to that title but in this case I couldn't find anything I looked through all the titles and couldn't find anything and there was though a work 280205 which didn't even I didn't consider as a plausible title for the show and that was the work the name of the work that I did preceding sorry I'm following my wife's death back in 2005 and you know it's nearly 10 years almost to the day on the 28th it is 10 years um, and I thought I've never discussed it publicly ever and rarely privately but I thought you know I would actually 
use that that date as a title for the show because it had obvious meaning. But also, you know, it wasn't just a memorial to her. It was an indi- you know it was a it was an indicator of the things in my life which change the direction of my work and you know I often say that you know some people some sculptors might sculpt the same sculpture all their life and some painters paint the same picture all their life and that's fine for some but for me my work changes dramatically um, with uh, things that have affected it so my life so the title is in some ways embodying change while also reflecting the personal nature of your work yeah exactly yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So in terms of then the the breadth of work that's represented in the exhibition, and, and as we've said, it's covering uh, from 74 to 2014, a significant amount of time. Your early works seem to be quite planar-based, uh, kind of uh, lots of, of angles, lots of mechanical inspiration, mm-hmm. for example. Then you went off and studied in the USA, I believe. Yeah. And how significant was that period of study? in terms of transmuting and changing your practice. Yeah, it was it was uh, possibly the most influential period of my life, you know, that two-year period, 83 to 85 in New York, on this Harkness Fellowship. But preceding that, the works, as you indicated, were quite frontal. You know, they were quite flat. You, you viewed them and looked at them from one perspective. And if you went to the back of the work, it was a mirror image of what you saw from the front. And, uh, you know, I was happy with that at the time, but I... Uh, you know, upon seeing an exhibition in Storm King, which is uh, um, an outdoor sculpture park north of New York, in 82, I went over there just preceding my Harkness, uh, I saw an exhibition there of David Smith, who I had seen as a great mentor, uh, the American abstract expressionist David Smith, who did fabulous works, particularly in the 50s, uh, and also Henry Moore. And Henry Moore I'd regarded as sort of yes, yesterday's man, which is a bit sacrilegious, I know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I wasn't interested in him as a sculptor. But when I saw about 30 works by each of those two artists, I immediately saw the limitations of the Smith work, which was principally that they were totally frontal. And when you moved around them, they disappeared almost totally disappeared because what he did was he would lay his shapes on the ground in the studio and then arc weld them together and stand them up and by you know as a by necessity they were flat whereas the moore's you know henry moore's works were totally three-dimensional and i i thought well you know it's really something that it is one of the not essentials for a sculptor because sculpture is so broad now it can be anything but you know, it's 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 one of the great um, aspects that a sculptor can use within their work. You know, to explore the third dimension and yeah. to use it. So I started making very three-dimensional works. It strikes me in some ways that sculpture is the the visual art form that is closest to dance, uh, in that it is about uh, working within space. Yeah. Uh, dance is about space and time to yes. a degree, yes. uh, and, and and sculpture, yeah. as well as the degree of time that goes into creating work, is about working in space and moving around within a space to view a work and shape a work. Yeah, no, it's a good parallel actually. I hadn't thought of that before, but you're right, it is. And and you know, a painting, um, you know, painters have all of the advantages. I think that sculptors don't, <laughs> in that they can contain their image within this lovely little frame, and it really doesn't matter what's happening outside of. That because your attention is held within 
that frame. But with sculpture, your eye can wander, you know, and it is constantly referring to the work as it reflects to the space, the actual space it sits within, and uh, it needs to deal with that. When you're making a work, how difficult is it to contain your ideas to to a particular size or scale? I mean, obviously, to, to a degree, you're going to be contained by the space you're working within your workshop, uh, your studio. But uh, does it sometimes happen that you begin on what you think may be a relatively small-scale sculpture, only to find that it keeps growing and expanding? Exactly. Look, I, I'm um, uh, constantly at... You know, at a, you know, there's a battle for me constantly to contain the work within a small scale. And there was an exhibition I was in a long time ago, and they and they wanted me to make a work no higher than I think 150 millimeters, and that was a huge challenge. I'd never done that before. But normally, uh, when I when I when I was younger, the limitation was the height of the ceiling. So you go up until it touched the ceiling, you know, and you could go no more. So I. I really tried not to limit myself too much, but of course, you know, you have those limitations. The obvious one of the height of the ceiling, but also gravity too, which contains and and restricts you in other ways. Oh, well, you'll just have to uh, I don't know, talk to Richard Branson and go off and start making sculpture in zero g. Then yeah. gravity won't be an issue. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, constraints on your work, apart from uh, size, talk to us about the idea of. Uh, materiality and the objects with which you work constraining the work because it's my understanding that given that you, you don't like to repeat yourself and once you mm. run out of a particular idea mm. you transfer to a new media, mm. a new material mm. in order to re-inspire yourself and explore a new direction. Yeah. You know, materials for a sculptor are unlimited uh, and but one of the constant battles for a sculptor is that you don't want to get too good at any one particular material you get too comfortable with it and it starts to dictate to you what the what the object will look like because you'll you know you'll know that a certain material won't do this and won't do that so you don't do it uh, and so your work becomes less spontaneous if you use I think one material for too long and so when I feel I've become a bit good at it I'll, I'll try something else where I'm not so good at it and the spontaneity returns. What's it? Can you give us an example of, of that that process? So I don't know becoming excessively familiar with bronze and moving to wood, for example. Yeah. How has that worked? When I was in the States, all of, because of, largely because of the material limitations and, and and equipment limitations I had at Columbia University, you know the works were uh, principally fabricated steel fabrications. But by necessity, they had a certain sort of uh, masculinity about them, which you know. Uh, I wanted to move away from by the end of that period of time and so to introduce a uh, uh, you know a more ephemeral if, if you like component I started modeling um, and so I would still use the steel armature as an underlying substructure but I would attach to it wax model the wax over the steel structure sometimes the steel structure would be exposed and other times it would be hidden by the bronze and then well when it became bronze I would melt the wax out and you know cast it into bronze and so we had this amalgam between steel and bronze between the fabrication of steel and the fluidity of the and organic nature of the of the of the what was modeled wax uh, and so you know I would do that but then on top of that I, I actually wanted to restrict the viewers access to the um, the um, the 
um, seduction of bronze. Bronze has a lot of baggage. You know, it is a very seductive material. I didn't want that. I wanted these works to have a toughness about them as well as a, you know, ephemeral nature. And um, so I painted the bronze and and uh, disguised it effectively, but allowed the colours to to bring objects forward and push others back into recess. We're speaking with sculptor Geoffrey Bartlett, whose work is the subject of an exhibition at McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery in Langwarren. The exhibition is called 280205 and is on now until the 17th of May. Geoffrey, when you're looking at this body of work that makes up the exhibition, how does it feel to be revisiting some of those earlier works and older works from your from your, uh, different periods in your life? Because I know certainly for myself, if I look at some of my writing from 20 or 30 years ago, I tend to cringe a little <laughs> yeah well what I've done rather than cringe is rework them you know, I don't know whether you've ever done that or not with your writing do you rewrite I'm not sure but I uh, it's a, that's a, a I know plenty of writers who do and other right. writers who say no let's just leave that that yeah, was a, yeah. a place and a point in time yeah. perhaps re-explore yeah. the same idea but now it's one of the fellow sculptors I shared a studio with for 19 years was Augustine Deliver and he's got a work of mine he you know we swapped works and I wanted it for the show it's called Left Turn it's one of the works I did in New York and uh, I said to him would you mind if I repainted it if I revisited that and he said absolutely no under no circumstances because this was a, a statement of what you were doing at that particular time it would be a complete sacrilege but I don't really feel quite that way sometimes I think maybe maybe I didn't get it right then in 1984 and I wouldn't mind having a crack at it again and so I revisit things like that and I quite enjoy that Tell us about then the more recent works because I'm looking at some of the works on your website from 2011, 2012 um, and people can look at Jeffrey's website jeffreybartlett.com if you want to see specifically some of the works we're talking about but there are um, uh, almost... Uh, there's, there's a headdress, there's a, uh, the, the work Cradle Mountain, this lovely lustrous blue uh, sequence of shapes linked together mm. in a way that evokes both architecture and landscape. Mm. Um, tell us about some of those more recent works and more, uh, more recent influences. Yeah, well, um, a lot of those works, that one you're referring to, is, you know, is referential to a wing, flight, but more a metaphor for escape rather than aeronautical flight and uh, so metaphors often appear in the work often too I'll, I'll, I've started to revisit the idea of putting works within a stage frame and we were talking about how we had to deal with space as a sculptor and how we had to contain the eye as best we could from, from disappearing outside of the confines of the work and what I've been doing is putting a frame around them and so the works quite often during that period are framed in a literal way and so this sculptural content is contained within what a painter might use you know a frame around it to control that space and uh, so I've been doing that a little bit and that's a recurring theme I mentioned right at the start that there was a work that Penny Teal the curator discovered called Red Box done in 1974 the second sculpture I did you know after I left RMIT and that had a very literal frame I'm not sure where it came from I can't remember what I was thinking at that time but certainly that frame has reappeared you know um, unconsciously I wasn't I had no idea of that you know because that sculpture has been hidden away up on the mezzanine I haven't looked at it for probably 20 years and uh, so I wasn't aware of that connection until she drew my attention to it so so the framing of of a sculptural content has become 
a theme and almost putting almost like actors within a stage like you were saying dancers you know within a stage Jeffrey Bartlett's Exhibition 280205 is on now until the 17th of May at McClelland Sculpture Park and Gallery, 390 McClelland Drive in Langwarren. Entry by donation. More details at www.mcclellandgallery.com and you can visit Jeffrey's own website at jeffreybartlett.com. Jeffrey, many thanks for joining us on Triple R today. Thank you, Richard. the show I mentioned that uh, one of the themes in today's program, unknowingly when I was first starting to uh, program uh, conversations, was that it turns out I'm chatting to a few sculptors today. Earlier in the show we spoke to Geoffrey Bartlett about his work that's on at McClelland Gallery and Sculpture Park. Joining me now on the line is Sydney-based artist Jamie North who works in sculpture and photography as well. Jamie, good morning. Hi, Richard. How are you? Really well, really well, thank you. Now, before we get into detail about Rock Melt, which is the work that is being installed uh, at Federation Court at the National Gallery of Victoria, um, I want to know a little bit more detail about your practice because photography and sculpture seem... In some ways, I can see the connection. They both There's a, a, a lot of intricacy that goes into printing, developing a photograph, for example, if you're using analogue equipment. In the same way, there's a lot of uh, thinking and, and hard work that goes, goes into sculpture. But what's the connecting thread of those two mediums for you? I guess the photography um, that I've been most recently interested in... Um actually feeds into the sculpture in that uh, the focus of the the photography is um, the materials that I'm using within the sculpture. So there's a very direct link. Um, An example would be um, this Moving Mountain series um, that I created, which is um, photographs of the slag heaps. Um, and slag, slag is a material which is used in rock melt. Um, slag is a byproduct, a waste product from making steel. So these mountains are composed of piles of this slag, which I then collect and use within the sculpture. So there's a very direct link there, um, it, you know, at least in that series. Yeah. So for Rock Melt, uh, which will uh, be on display in Federation Court at NGV International from Friday the 27th of March, you've made that, as we've just heard, from recycled slag and concrete. Uh, That's right. You're making kind of this series of uh, works that, for me, seem to, having not yet seen them, but reading about them, it it sounds almost as if they're a, um, a reflection or a throw back to Neolithic art, kind of these great stone pillars that you're going to be creating? Yeah, I think that's definitely there. Um, I'm very interested in archaeology and um, those kind of forms, and and I guess Neolithic in um, that I deal mostly with form casting, so, you know, the the forms are all quite block-like, you know. Um, So, yeah, that's definitely there. 
And then there's also an environmental element because as well as working with recycled material from the, that byproduct of, of, of the, the smelting process, you're then also working with native flora. And anybody who's kind of with a, an open eye as they walk down a street might have seen moss or flowers or plants growing from a crack in the wall or from a crack in the concrete. Nature is really quite remarkable in the way it can take the tiniest foothold and yeah. grow from that. And so you're then incorporating that into into your practice and into these works, Rock Melt. Yeah, yeah, that, that was one of the original sources um, of inspiration, I guess. Um, in Sydney, two native species, a native fern species and a, <clears throat> and a ficus species um, that is found in Sydney uh, actually uh, grow out of buildings here um, as they would grow out of, you know, a rock crevice. In nature, and it, it's very much part of Sydney's ecology because the bats eat the fig fruit, and the fruit bats then deposit the fruit on buildings as they would have, you know, in a rock crevice. And um, you know, the, the fig takes um, takes hold in the masonry. So, I, I guess when I first started making the concrete sculpture, I wanted to represent that um, that phenomenon in a sculptural form. And for me, it was. Um, an expression of place, I guess. But um, since that time, it's um, I guess the intentions have become a little more elaborate. But um, yeah, that, that was the genesis. And I'm just wanting to represent that in a sculptural form. And what plant life will you be using uh, for the, the Melbourne installation of these works? So uh, it's a variety of native species that are found along the east coast and down to Melbourne. And um, I guess the principal species is Wonga Wonga vine, um, Pandaria pandorana. Um, yeah, it's a for me it's a very emblematic vine, and um, you know it's quite popular in cultivation. Um, so yeah, um, that, that's one of the species I'll be using. Another one is uh, wombat berry, which is found along the east coast. So um, yeah, mostly vine species that um, hopefully over the course of the show will scramble towards the um, overhead skylight. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very light field space, so they should scramble towards towards the light source. And uh, apart from that, um, a selection of fern species. Again, all all, all natives. Yeah. I really like the, this notion of being inside an, a, an enclosed architectural space because the forecourt used to be open to the air, but after the yeah. redevelopment at the NGV several years ago has now been, uh, uh, is now a closed courtyard. Nonetheless, as you say, it is a light-filled space. So the idea of then filling that space, placing within it these kind of almost five metre tall, in some cases, mm. uh, kind of sculptural works rising up like slabs of rock and uh, mixed with, with concrete and steel and then the, the plants growing upon them. It's a really intriguing fusion of, of artificial and man-made and the natural environment. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully the forms will... Um uh, also echo the architecture of the space, um, the, the dimensions and the materiality, um, the whole tone of the works. Hopefully it ties into that idea of archaeology um, and, you know, might perhaps feel as if uh, the works were kind of pulled from the ground, um, you know, for, from a, at least an imagined archaeology of that space. People will get a chance to see Jamie North's Rock Melt, uh, part of uh, the NGV's ongoing series of Federation Court Commissions, which will be on display from the 27th of March until the 13th of July this year. Jamie North, thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, Richard.
Joe Lloyd joins me in the studio for our fortnightly segment, Dancing on the Radio. Hey, Joe. Hey, good how you doing? Good, good. Good to have you in. It's good to be in. A bit lonely over this side of the uh, no, mic. No Gerard Van Dyke this fortnight, but we'll catch up with him again soon, I'm yes. sure. So, what's going on in the world of dance, contemporary, classic and otherwise? Uh, everyone's rehearsing, pretty much, and it's it's kind of exciting because um, I'm getting thrown all these RSVPs at the moment, so it's like, okay, I've got to do that schedule and um, get on to Dance Massive. That's going to be massive. Yes, I've started kind of organising tickets for that, uh, both for myself and for the reviewers at Arts Hub. Um, but it's, it is going to be massive. It's basically, I'm not doing anything for two weeks, but going to see contemporary dance and talking to, about contemporary dance and um, going to the National Dance Forum that's being held over yes. at Footscray Community Arts Centre. It starts on the 19th, I believe. Yeah. Yes, four days. Yep, so uh, it's going to be, uh, I think, basically by the end of it, I'm going to be throwing shapes and kind of... Uh, You'll be ready to choreograph something. <laughs> we'll do a duet. We'll do a duet. Okay. <laughs> Possibly just walking to the bar, but uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that. And there's also um, a little uh, prequel to Dance Massive, a show coming up um, Northcote Town Hall by uh, Phantom Limbs. They've developed a new one, which um, is a duet led by a duet of um, dancers are still in their emerging sort of phase of their career. So we've got James Wellsby and Amy McPherson. The piece is called, we'll get there soon, but um, yeah, I just thought I'd mention that because sometimes things get a little bit left to the side prior to Dance Massive. I, I did think it was quite good that they'd put it on in the first week of March when Dance Massive opens in the second week. Yeah, it's uh, it's a... Uh, I think the, the, you're quite right that it's very easy to perhaps overlook uh, works that are coming up when there's a big festival coming. It's like um, uh, some of the comedy rooms at the moment are full of comedians trying out work for the comedy festival coming up, for example. Yeah. But uh, I think a lot of other comedy shows are perhaps kind of being overlooked because everyone's just gearing up for the comedy festival. So good on the Speakeasy team at Northcote Town Hall for putting on Dream Logic by Phantom Limbs, a new dance work uh which, as Joe said, is on in uh, the in early March, from the 6th until the 10th of March, 7.30pm at Northcote Town Hall. Now, James Wellsby, who's uh, been working on that, has been a, a very busy man um, yeah. touring the countryside with Hex, his work from Next Wave last year. Yeah, and it also had a, um, a season at the Malt House after... Um Dan- uh, not dance massive after next wave, which was really great. He just kept it going, and it was during oh, the that's AIDS. Right, it was on for the World conference. AIDS Conference yep. last year. Yeah. yeah. So he's done uh, Perth uh, Fringe World. I know uh, Adelaide, a, a season in Adelaide, and is now I think uh, heading up to Brisbane. Yeah, and they might have even done Sydney. I think. Yeah. But massive tour. Very big. And now the 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 new work, uh, Dream Logic. Um, Amy McPherson is the co-choreographer in this. I'm not as familiar with Amy's work as I am with James's. Yeah, they kind of created the company together post studying at VCA together and um, they used to do a couple of little duetty things at um, sort of mixed program evenings at Arts House and things like that. But um, yeah, they, and they often bring in choreographers. They brought in Luke George one year to choreograph a work um, for I think it was last year's uh, Fringe. No, the year before Fringe, yeah, 2013. Yeah. 
doing well. Excellent. If people want to book and get along to see uh, Dream Logic by Phantom Limbs, which is on at Northcote Town Hall from the 6th to the 10th of March, uh, to um, early career choreographers, you can find out more details at darabinart.com.au. Now, they strike me as the kind of uh, uh, choreographers who within a, another year or two will be picking up Green Room Awards at left, right and centre. You never know. How's that for a segue, Joe? Yeah, well... You know, being independent, definitely. There, um, there are five, oh no, six, one, two, three, five. Five up for concept and realization, all independents in the category. Um, and it's incredible. James Batchelor for his work Ireland. Natalie Abbott for Maximum, which is coming up in Dance Massive if you mi- missed it in Next Wave. Um, Natalie Curzio, Shannon Bott and Simon Ellis for Recovery. Shemaine um, Steele Pryor for In Formation 2. And Lillian Steiner for Noise Quartet Meditation, which is amazing. You know, like five young, pretty young makers up for concept and realisation so that's beautiful. Now the annual Green Room Awards, the nominations were just recently announced they're Melbourne's Performing Arts Awards for professional work across a range of categories so as well as dance there's music theatre, main stage companies theatre, independent theatre, opera and so forth but we're going to obviously in this segment look at some of the nominees for dance so the dance awards in Green Room we've just heard about concept and realisation, the other category are male dancer, female dancer, ensemble performance. Uh, there is an award, a specific award for choreography. There's a visual design award, and there's a music, sound design, and performance award. It's interesting that music, sound design, and performance all put together into the one category. Yeah, I mean the categories are um, sometimes quite challenging, especially now because you need to register um, to be nominated. So some people are just catching on to that, but it's um, important to do that to be considered and. Um, it's interesting to look at um, contemporary experimental performance, um, which is, you know, a whole different category to dance. Um, and in the outstanding work by an emerging artist, there's a work by choreographer Shian Law, person mythology. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I guess we have to put them into little compartments, but um, dance is spreading its wings all the time (laughs) across the art forms. But um, there's some excellent nominations up there. Um, I'll just dot over a few for male dancer. Lee Searle for his work in Trisha Brown's company, which was fantastic. Great to see that up there. They were out here for the Melbourne Festival last year. Yeah, and um, female dancer. Some dancers that just... um, have really been given an opportunity to show what they can do, like Michaela Pegum, who um, was in a work in the Chunky Move program by um, Pia Leach. And, um, yeah, there's also some excellent um, musicians that came up in the nominations too, one being um, a musician that uh, did music for Fountain by... Atlanta Eek by Dan... Uh, the nomination goes to... <laughs> uh, Daniel Janach. Yes. I'm not sure how to pronounce your surname, Daniel. Apologies. And Byron Scullins in there for his work on recovery and um, Alistair McIndoe. Who's a choreographer and dancer as well as a self-taught composer and sound designer. And everything else. The other day he was editing... He was making this new program for editing and I was just like, oh gosh, when do the talents stop with you? <laughs> He's amazing. Uh, and uh, so if you want more details about the Green Room Awards, greenroom.org.au, they were announced just a couple of weeks about that, yeah, two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Uh, and so you've got the full list of nominees on the website for dance, for contemporary and experimental performance, for cabaret, for opera, for, for 
theatre companies and independent theatre um, and music theatre. So lots of people across art forms uh, all nominated. And uh, congratulations to all the nominees. Because yes. I think with a lot of award ceremonies, particularly something like the Green Room Awards or uh, the upcoming Errols, which is Tasmania's new Performing Arts Awards, uh, the inaugural Errols being awarded, I think, this weekend. Um, I think it's, it's it's as much about the recognition of by being nominated. Yeah, it's great totally. to walk home with yep. a trophy. But yep. these are peer-assessed and peer-based awards, so it means yep. that by being nominated, you are being recognised by your peers for your work, regardless of whether you take home the gong. Exactly. Yeah. So it's lovely. Have you ever won a Green Room Award, John? I haven't got one of or those. Been nominated? Green. Yeah, I've had quite a few noms which has been lovely and um haven't walked home with one of those green things but maybe one day <laughs> I, I quite like the noms you know like it's our little mini oscars so it's yeah. it's really lovely and uh, well you might get nominated later this year because you've got a new work coming up later i do year. yes i'm gonna put out my work confusion for three this year which is exciting because it's been brewing for a while so yes well, more of that to come more of that to come we'll talk about that perhaps in a little more detail down the track or we can to, to avoid conflict of interest maybe we'll have to see if i can get you on as a guest on someone else's show there you go yeah um i published a piece on arts hub yesterday about uh artshub.com.au about the prevalence of design in dance and this is something that i think you and gerard had seeded and put in my head years ago the the fact that so much contemporary dance not just in melbourne but around australia but i think it's very prominent in melbourne the the design it has become such a an interlinked interwoven part of contemporary dance practice it's like the the design and the choreography are almost made together and and bounce off one another yes and i mean um sometimes it's uh, actually functioning in that way that objects are choreographed in the space so design is a physical um, component of the work, you know, bringing in things that are folded, and um, you know, Lucy Guerin made that work um, about the collapse of the Westgate and, and you know, this beautiful, yeah, beautiful yeah. bridge built and collapsed. So Early ballet lab work I saw, Origami, for example, which had this folding, folded set yeah. that the dancers manipulated and moved with. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look back, sort of a quick scan back historically with dance, you know, there was always the sort of um, content and the context. So, you know, there was this proscenium arch, the framing of it, and so design always has that role of framing the work and framing the body, and it's... Um, it's almost like it got stripped back in that postmodern era where, you know, it was just lycra. But even in doing the strip back, that there's your design right there. So it's kind of this interesting thing of performance trends um, and going into the latest sort of sweep of, you know, gallery dance combinations. So it's kind of, it's that thing of um, noticing um, what, what the dance needs, you know. And for me, I'm kind of always... Um, interested in what the body can do and when do you need to bring those things in and um, you know it's it's always that that moment where you're like I just want to throw some paint you know so um, you know what can the body do what can this form do um, it's one of the things that fascinated me about talking to designer Jeff Cobham who has worked with a range of, of dance companies he commented on the fact that when he designs for dance as opposed to designing uh, for theatre and actors 
dancers, he can make them part of the design because they're going to hit their mark every time they use the space. If they say they will end up there, they will end up there at that point, and he can then utilise the lighting design to make the most of that, whereas actors will say, oh, I might be there, or I might drift across the stage somewhere else tonight. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I mean, and, and also some dance might not hit that spot, which is it's kind of exciting what the design has to do um, to sort of meet that or, you know, in a way, not be so selfish and say the dance rules, but you know, it's it's quite interesting just watching out, watching how that plays out, that designer maker relationship. In in some of the the dance works that you've made in the past, Joe, how integral has have those design elements been? So backdrop, lighting, costume, uh, pretty huge. And in, in some ways, for me, I've kind of gone through a phase of stripping that back because I felt like I got a little bit um, confused with that and um, wanted to just sort of bring it back to what the movement was st- was stating rather than sort of adding too many layers. But I mean, I really love doing all that and I love bringing in a team and you know working on that. But sometimes I think I got kind of excited and it led me on a path that ended up. You know, reading a certain way, and I think sometimes it's important to um, just make those choices really clear so that the work is actually delivering the right information for the audience to go, okay, right, she's taking us here. You know, um, so it can be a bit hit and miss if you um, if you haven't developed that relationship. I think it's it's quite important to um, create those collaborative relationships that work. Now, there are going to be some great examples of collaborative relationships coming up in Dance Massive. Uh, For sure. Which is the uh, the biennial dance festival uh, presented by Dance House, Arts House and the Malt House in collaboration and partnership with uh, Ausdance Victoria. Um, is there a dancer uh, or a dance company, uh, choreographer um, in Australia, to your mind, Joe, who perhaps exemplifies the, the, the blending and the working together of dance and design? Mm, look, I think um, we're really lucky because Dance Massive um, programs quite a lot of Melbourne makers, and I think in Melbourne there's a real intelligence with um, dance and design. And, um, I mean, one of the... Interesting ones, um, Alastair McIndoe and Anthony Hamilton have, have developed this work with all these little mini robots. I haven't seen it yet and I'm excited to see it. But just even in um, collaborating in that way with these different forms, already there's going to be this setup that is, is going to um, bring about some design that's going to be quite interesting, I think, because both of those, those makers are quite visual. Um, I, I, you know, it's hard to think, as you asked the question, I was thinking maybe you were going to go the other way and, and try, uh, try to get me to pinpoint one that just strips back to design, and even in doing that, that's designed. So that's, um, but I was sort of thinking, um, I don't know that there'll be any one work that won't um, have a, a lush creative relationship with the design. I think um, there's a few alternate spaces. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be pretty rich when it comes down to that. I'm very much looking forward to sinking my teeth into Dance Massive 2015, which is running from the 10th to the 22nd of March. More info at www.dancemassive.com.au. And I'll be interviewing some of the various artists and companies involved with Dance Massive on the program in the coming weeks. Fantastic. Joe, thanks for joining us. Anytime. We will catch you, well, anytime in a fortnight's time, to be precise. Great. See you then. Bye.
Triple R's the station you're tuned to. Time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company. I'll be back next Thursday between 9am and midday with more arts news and conversations, and I'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.